It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Chapter 10. A Study in Collective Trauma Dear Diary, Tonight was a relative feast up on the roof of H.G. World. Harris found a big box of these little Brand X freeze-dried turkey sausages from an undisclosed location. I have to admit that the phrase CDC and FEMA certified on the thick plastic packaging threw me off a bit. Given our situation, those agencies hardly represent the pinnacle of disaster containment and control. Since freeze-dried turkey sausage sounds about as tasty as old car seat stuffing, Harris grilled them up and slathered them in thick red hot wing sauce. I guess they couldn't find ketchup. Harris passed portions around to the constables as they chatted and gossiped about the latest stupid or insanely dull things going on down below in the warehouse. There was a story about a guy the one-armed bandit who stole some food from kids over in Plum District by threatening to show them the stump where the eaters had stopped gnawing off his arm. Krantz offered a story about catching two teenagers in the lofts in the middle of nature's spring calling. The happy couple made a little love nest for themselves inside the lumber stacks about thirty feet up. Sixteen he is, and nineteen is she. Romance and captivity. No charges were filed, but Krantz was a little too detailed in his descriptions, leading Harris to ask him how long he watched them before telling them to stop. Krantz's only answer was to blush and dig back into his plate. David gave the eater mob report for the day, having come off a long shift of staring out into the wasteland. He said he didn't see any new eaters in the parking lot today. I asked why that was notable. David replied that they tracked new eaters like astronomers track, or tracked, asteroids. They looked for clues in new eaters, patches on uniforms, school jackets, even the condition of the body, so they could start to forecast how the eaters were getting up here from one of only two access roads to the south. The valley is surrounded by a largely steep and treacherous ring of mountains, so the eaters here now had to find their way up to the Erie Highway Bypass to Main Street and up the Access Road, or along the Forsyth River from along the Susquehanna. It's not unusual, David continued, for an eater or twenty to follow a scent hundreds of miles. Before I could dig a little deeper into how he knows all this, Krantz called boring on the entire topic. David wrapped up the serious part of the evening by concluding that the cold weather was slowing down the eaters, and maybe we could look forward to having just the same hundred or so monsters lurking outside through the winter months. Cold comfort, indeed. Hoping to add a little fun to the conversation, I asked why they don't bring rifles up on the roof and start killing off the eaters. Harris replied that it's a mixed blessing to have them. It's protection from marauders and insulation from other survivors we wouldn't let inside anyway. They'll save their bullets for anyone stupid enough to try to run the gauntlet of wrecks and eaters, 
or to try to sneak up to set an IED near the doors or loading docks. Before I could probe further, Jeb got his share of dinner, and his warrior poet soul inspired him to describe the dish as bloody stool. Unfortunately, the name stuck. Would you like another helping of bloody stool, David? Why, yes, Harris, I don't think I could get enough of that old-fashioned bloody stool. Nobody makes bloody stool like my grandma. In an instant, the serious world over the edge disappeared. Such is life on the roof. The roof, to many people living down inside the building, is like the penthouse suite, a place only a few people are allowed to see if they have influence or power. I got up here because David and I hatched this little plan that involved starting a community newsletter to combat a lot of the rumors and misinformation we hear in the warehouse. Jenny Jo loved the idea, especially after David fed her the line about writing about herself, and I was given access to a word processor in the office upstairs and, sarcastic gasp, the password to the copier and supply cabinet. My first story, Up on the Roof. A horribly titled essay on what really goes on up there all the time. The roof, not counting the things beyond the ledges, is actually pretty dull. That's not to say it's unimportant to everyday life. It's where the farm of solar panels and garden of wind turbines keeps the lights going down below. There are always maintenance people here checking on connections and ball bearings and things. There's also a fenced-off area with black plastic sheets stitched to the chain link. It looks like they're building something over the loading dock area, but I couldn't make out what. When David caught me looking thoughtfully at the piles of wood and blanketed crates near the work area, he urged me not to think too long on that, and offered me dinner. For the constables, it's a sort of watchtower and escape in the same way the garden section is a breath of fresh air for the refugees. Sorry, Backspace. Residents of HG World. To be honest, it's like an employee lounge meeting, a campout. If it rains, they sit over on the east side near the solar panel farm in a rather nice gazebo. When it gets too bad, they huddle in David's little cabin on the south side and take turns walking the edge of the roof. They're looking for signs of a herd coming up on the access road, marauders, other survivors. And sometimes they'll see people who live in the valley between the western and Kulstruck, Coldstone, Cudsucker, whatever mountain the old man on the radio lives on. I had been reluctant to walk up to the edge. For my first hour on the roof, I parked myself on an upturned paint bucket around their little charcoal pit. I tried to ignore anything below the horizon of the building's ledge and enjoy the gray-blue sky and fresh air. Soon, though, talk of the eaters and the groans and bleats that rose with the smell of grilling meat drew me out to see the parking lot on the south side of the building. When I first looked out over the ledge, I wanted to run inside and hide somewhere. I know that's pretty stupid considering we are at least five stories above their heads, even so, when I looked down, it wasn't long before they started looking up. I'd forgotten the sharpest points of their appearance that had dulled over the intervening months. Over time, 
the ugly reality of their appearance softened in my imagination. I saw rubber latex and stage blood. Seeing them again reminds me that each of them used to be a real human being, and the long gashes and gouges in their bodies are never going to heal but fade, tear, and wear out like the signs out near the access road. They're still out there bleaching under the sun, clothes turning green and black with mold, bodies bloated by the rain, debris, and all the rotting flesh they've tried to ingest. They may be slow and stupid, but they continue to hunt. Alone they seem almost sad and tragic, but in numbers like this, it's like a bad summer storm that will never end. There is no hate, no sympathy, no joy. Just hunger. The parking lot is littered with wrecked or abandoned cars. They make a maze of steel and fiberglass through which the eaters wander like drunken mice. The maze of wrecks prevents them from really forming a herd, but there is nothing to keep the hundreds of eaters out there in the lot from climbing over each other toward us. It would take hundreds, maybe thousands, to reach the roof, but... How many eaters are out there right now catching our scent in the breeze, turning away from their meal and heading our way? How long until this place is surrounded by ten times the herd that flooded our buses? When Harris grabbed me by the arm, I jumped and pulled away from him. I didn't scream, but I did cry out, and that stirred the eaters below us into a chorus of impatient groans and howls that spread out into the mob across the lot. It was the same haunting, lost noise that I remembered from the road. It made me harder to remove myself from that moment. I stared at the gravel under my feet, to the sky, then put my face into my hands, but in every instance, I saw the dead glaring at me. Their voices on the wind told me they knew I was there and they were coming, coming for me at last. It was David's look of concern that brought me out of wherever I'd been. My heart was pounding, and I was short of breath. Jebediah told them to get me the hell off the roof before the whole parking lot got excited, but I was able to get a hold of myself, and the other constables were able to talk Jeb down. Harris told me I'd been staring down at the mob for a good five minutes, and I kept moving closer to the edge. I didn't hear them talking about me or telling me to watch my step. When Harris grabbed me, I was leaning over the side. I don't remember any of that, and I thought I'd only been looking down for a few seconds. I wanted to get outside so badly, but seeing the dead, so many of them staggering around, tripping over dried remains, it destroys all fantasy about clinging to the world we knew. Down there, that's us. That's who we were as a people and who, one day, will all become. Undead. Rotting. Savage. How can you stand being out here? I asked no one in particular. I tried a bit of bloody stool and someone handed me something that smelled like paint thinner to wash it down. After the first bite of the wing sauce, I had to take a sip. I'm sorry I did, because between the tastes and burning, I felt like my face was being embalmed. 
at least the pain grounded me. When I recovered, Harris was there to answer my question. We see it every day, the eaters down there. I think it means something different to everybody. To me, it reminds me why I do my job, to protect my family. To Jeb, it's an audience of things to toy with, animals to torture. I think Krantz and David are real good at keeping their reasons to themselves, but it gets them out here. Kind of like you don't want to be stuck inside a metal box surrounded by monsters. You worked your way back onto a roof and realized that there's no way off this time. What he said wasn't comforting, but it was true. Another sip of paint thinner and I was ready for sleep. Maybe it's best that I'm in here. This place is worse than the bus, worse than a jail. It's a tomb. Postscript. Now that I'm back inside, sitting here on the steps of what they call the mayor's house, it's like a spell has been broken. Maybe it's that little buzz I feel from Jebediah's moonshine, but I'm actually thinking pretty clear right now. I thought I'd been fighting it, but I didn't realize how hypnotized I've been, how we all are down here. We've painted our trees into the cinder block, put little tool sheds into rows along the concrete floor and called it Main Street. And we've collectively agreed to make this place into something it could never be. I look around at my neighbors, really strangers, and I see dead faces. I see rot and ruin. I see people who are as dead and empty as the things walking around outside. The only difference is that we haven't started eating each other. Yet. How'd you get here? It's a simple question that helps pass the time, but also rides that line of impolite conversation that pulls citizens out of that carefully constructed reality we've built for ourselves. It's that little rule enforced by our collective insanity that implies, We've always been here, Jill. What is this world outside you speak of? There is no world outside, only death and rot and blood. Hell is outside these walls, so enjoy this earthly paradise while you can, before you become like the soulless eaters wandering around outside. We don't talk about that last night before the steel shutters fell. That's not a law or a rule that gets you a day with Jeb if you break it. I think the collective shame and horror of our experience outside makes it a subject even Jebediah doesn't want to tackle. It's why citizens of HG World are not allowed up on the roof for the most part. It's why the paint department of the store was handed over to a dozen bored people with some artistic talent so they could paint pastures and trees across the wall, and a permanent sunrise in the north, and snowmen on a tropical beach in the west but it's also why manager Jack had the wall of lost souls painted over. He didn't want us to dwell on the people we lost or left behind. Even writing their names was too much. And we just agreed to allow those names to get buried under another coat of sunshine and sky. I bought myself a little bit of freedom writing this newsletter piece. I can sit here on the steps of the mayor's house and do not attract the attention of the constables. I get some strange looks from the other residents, but 
none of them have been bold enough to ask me what I'm doing. That's another manifestation of our collective trauma, as my abnormal psych prof would say. If you don't ask any questions, you won't have to deal with anything that might challenge the thin fantasy you've built up around you. A probing question or an uncomfortable answer might come between you and your next meal. Or your child's. Or your ability to sleep through the night. The mayor isn't home. He's left his massive showroom house and office here in the middle of HG World to work up in the offices. I can see him standing in the skybox overlooking the warehouse floor. With manager Jack, Jebediah, and some men I've never seen before. They look down over us like the gods on high, waving and gesturing as though it's making their vision reality as they speak. They don't seem to notice me down here. They don't seem to notice anyone in particular. Now I know what a sim might feel like. Or a goldfish. Or a sea monkey. This. Yes.